0: We've begun a journey recently at the beginning of 2024 through the Adventures of Acts, which is a name I'm using for a book in the Bible about the early church. Last week we spoke about the ascension, Jesus' departure from being physically present on the earth when he ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God. We saw how much the ascension distracted the followers of Jesus. Those first followers were just left staring into the sky, uh, wondering what was going on, until two angels came along and just gently reminded them uh, that they could be spending their time in a much better way than just staring up into the sky. Because just before Jesus ascended, he had given them instructions. He had given them instructions to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then they were to go and tell people all around them about Jesus. So those angels were sent to help Jesus' followers from being distracted from the mission that Jesus had given them. And it's important to always keep in mind as we're going through this book of Acts that the primary theme about the book of Acts, or in the book of Acts, is mission. All about the mission of spreading the good news of Jesus so that people can know Jesus. And the sight of Jesus' first followers staring up into the sky, distracted by what happened, what's going on, is probably not that much different than us going through the book of Acts in 2024, week by week, but then going home and just being distracted by the busyness of life and forgetting all about the mission that Jesus had sent them on. We can be as distracted as, as easily as the disciples were. So what happened in these adventures of Acts that got Jesus' followers involved in that ongoing continuing mission that we're all meant to be pursuing even now still until this day well let's read what comes next in the book of the book of acts last week we read up until chapter 1 verse 12 and this week i'm going to continue reading i'm going to start again at verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter do you have that on your handout or if you have a bible you can open your bible to acts chapter 1 and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's important to pause here. It's important to recognize how counterculture that is. Just the mention of the fact that along together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, in those days, women had a very low status on the social structure of the day. Very low status. So much so that when, when you're Average historian from that time period Was writing a history They would not have mentioned Oh, oh, by the way There were women present too And then actually named One of the women by name Mary, the mother of Jesus This is counterculture The church has represented a shift To say that Hey, women are not low On the social structure On that status They're they're as important as men And let's mention them They were there as well And all his bowels gushed out. Sorry about that. This is a little bit graphic. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Ekeldamah, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of those Of these two you have chosen. It's interesting. Who are they praying to? You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one the two of you have chosen. Just if you check up, you wouldn't be able to see this in your handout. But in verse 2, it talks about Jesus when it says, Until the day when he was taken up, until after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. It's talking at the very beginning of this book about Jesus choosing the apostles. And then it talks about here in in this, this later verse that we just read that show us the one that you have chosen. I believe they're praying to Jesus because Jesus chose the initial ones, as he mentions at the beginning of the book. And he's meant to choose this replacement apostle as well. They're praying to Jesus as Lord to take the place To take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside, to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, we're talking about... These disciples, having witnessed the ascension of Jesus, and then they returned to Jerusalem and gathered in a room they'd been staying at, and with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Two weeks ago, I shared an illustration in a message you might remember about. I preached about the. This was the very beginning of the Book of Acts, the first first sermon we had on it, and I shared about a time where soon after I graduated from Bible College with a degree in missions, I got distracted. Some of you may remember. In fact, I not only graduated with a missions degree, I got a missions award. I got the Shields Memorial Award for missions. Come on, isn't that great? It's, don't don't clap. It's, it's not great, it's just a piece of paper. It's a paper that's given to somebody who's got great potential in missions. But who really cares if the guy who gets the shields memorial award for missions and graduated with a mission degree immediately gets distracted by getting two jobs to save up for a car stereo (laughs) in my rattle box of a dodge omni that's all i wanted i just wanted a car stereo i was that's all i was in fact working two jobs kept me so busy that i had no time for missions i was distracted and you might say that when my former missions professor called me about actually going on a mission with my missions degree and my Shields Memorial Award for Missions, come on, you want to actually use those and go on a mission? I, I said no. And he said, would you pray about it? And some of you, two weeks ago, actually audibly gasped when I said, no, I won't even pray about it. Well, the rest of the story is I did end up praying about it and I did go on a one year mission to Sudan but I wouldn't have gone if I hadn't prayed I just wouldn't have prayer changed my heart prayer was how God got my focus on the mission the passage we just read said in those days those days were the 10 days between Jesus ascending to heaven and the Holy Spirit being sent from heaven Jesus ascends And the Holy Spirit has yet to come. And there's 10 days in between. This is describing the first prayer meeting of the early church. And today I want to explore two aspects of that prayer meeting. And let me just see what I've got here. So they prayed and praised in uncertainty. That's the first point. It feels important to imagine the first couple sentences of this passage. Let's just read it slowly and just imagine. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, that Sabbath journey was about a kilometer. That's how much you were allowed to walk on a Sabbath without, without it being considered work doing work on the Sabbath, which wasn't allowed. And so that was probably what about a 12 to 15 minute walk, Terry, would that be it? 12 to 15 minutes, walk a kilometer, at an easy pace. We're talking an easy pace here. So let's imagine what might have been on their minds and what might have been in their conversation as they were walking. I mean, they just experienced something extraordinary. They weren't just kind of chewing the fat, just kind of saying, hey, how about those jets? No. Let's imagine, they'd just seen the man they walked with and learned from for three amazing years ascend into the sky. He ascended. He, he was lifted off the ground and disappeared into the clouds. And then he was gone. The man they'd dedicated their lives to was gone. But before he ascended, he told them to wait in Jerusalem and told them the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. The Holy Spirit. And then he told them to go tell the whole world about him. And what he'd done. And then two angels showed up. Two angels. To reassure them. And to remind them to get back on the mission. That Jesus had, had sent them on. Every one of those things. Would have been. Jaw dropping stuff. Like every one of those things is extraordinary. For one thing. Jesus was gone. Secondly he ascended into the sky. That was like an Elijah kind of moment. or. Elijah is a character in the Bible who was taken up in a chariot to heaven. It was like they'd only read stories like that. They they never imagined witnessing something like that. And then the Holy Spirit, He used to only come on very select people in the Bible. In the ancient days, He would only come on key people that God was using. And now Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming on us? The Holy Spirit's going to come on us? The whole world knowing about Jesus... When Jesus mentioned that, that would have been way outside their comfort zone. It was a very rare occurrence when the people of God were encouraged to tell anyone other than Jewish people about God. They kept to themselves. And they only rarely reached out to others. And I'm sure it never ceased to amaze them at the thought of having an angel come and speak to them. I mean, that would be amazing. So it's easy to imagine as they walk back to Jerusalem all of that would have excited them and all of that would have confused them and their conversation would have reflected it part of them must have been saying what just happened what will that be like when the Holy Spirit comes upon us did he say with power and, and when's, when's he going to restore the kingdom of Israel why didn't he answer our question about that and, and, and were those were those angels who came to speak to us just now They were wondering all of those things. But then they also were probably thinking, This is amazing! The Holy Spirit's going to come upon us! And that must have been what he meant when he said he'd never leave us or forsake us. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon us. So they might have been confused and they might have been excited. These were ten days of living between the wonderful promises and the confusing realities that they had just experienced. Ten days of uncertainty about what they'd already seen and about promises Jesus had just spoken. Who doesn't know what it's like to live in uncertainty? I mean, I expect we all know what it's like at times to live in uncertainty. Those of you who are new to Canada... You may have known it was going to be hard when you arrived here. But the uncertainty of job prospects prospects, and the uncertainty of financial instability as you look for a good job, a job that can pay the bills, may be making it feel much harder than you imagined. And and those of you who are teenagers, you may be wondering who your friends are in the uncertain environment of school life. I remember the days in school, when you'd you'd have friends in school, and suddenly the next day they wouldn't be your friends anymore because they found a better friendship group to belong to. And, and And they abandoned you, and they wouldn't talk to you anymore because they'd found better friends. It was hugely upsetting. And I remember those days, those uncertain days, of knowing who your friends were. Those of you who are facing health challenges may be thinking that 10 days of living in uncertainty is a long time when you're waiting for a doctor's report, especially if you're living in pain or when you have no idea what the diagnosis is going to be. Such situations leave us wondering, what's going on? Where's God gone? Why would God allow this? And the disciples were probably wondering questions like those. For the followers of Jesus in those days, such uncertainty led them to pray. We're told that when they reached the upper room where they were saying all of these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now it's important when reading the book of Acts, to keep one eye on another book that was written by the same author who wrote Acts. It's a book called The Gospel of Luke. And it's a story about the life of Jesus. In that book, Luke writes a much shorter account of this in-between time. Between Jesus departing and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he wrote about this in-between time. These ten days. This is how he described it. And they worshipped him. Worshipped Jesus. Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God joy and blessing or another translation say praising God so that's why we see that they were both excited and uncertain so even in the midst of uncertainty they were able to feel that excitement Some of you may know that my wife was once told that she shouldn't or couldn't ever have children because of a kidney disease. And that left us in a lot of uncertainty, wondering, what's going on? Why, Why would God allow this? But then on February 6th, 1992, I'm going back a ways. A man with a strong prophetic gift. His name was John Paul Jackson. And by prophetic gift, what I mean is he was a man who could hear clearly from God and share what he was hearing to encourage others. Clear messages. And we had a big meeting. It was a, it was a room bigger than this one. In fact, our old gym at Panett Road was probably just a little bigger than this, right? Not a whole lot bigger. And, and it was full. It was packed. And he picked Fiona and I out of the crowd and asked us to stand. Now, I'd seen meetings like these where people were chosen out of the crowd and talked to, but it had never been me before. And they, he picked us out and he basically read our mail. He talked to us. I'd never met the man. And he was new to the city. He'd never met, he'd, they'd never been to our church before. But he spoke to Fiona and I like he knew exactly who we were. He described our personality types to a T, so much so that people laughed out loud because he was so accurate in his description but then he talked he said this he pronounced something he said you guys are going to have a quiverful of children a quiverful now that was a wow moment and yet it just left us living between these this wonderful promise and confusing realities it got us excited but the fact is we still face the reality of kidney disease Fiona's kidneys were still failing as test results came in and showed that they were getting worse. But we had this promise. So we were living in between the promise and the reality. We felt confusion, but we also felt excitement. And I see two clear reasons why Jesus' first disciples and why Fiona and I and why... Any one of us in this room can feel joy even when you feel uncertain about your circumstances. Even when things feel confusing. And here are the two reasons you can feel joy in the midst of those confusing realities. Those difficult circumstances. They knew Jesus was God. And they believed his promises. If you choose to do those two things, you will feel joy even in the midst of troubles that are confusing. They knew Jesus was God and they believed his promises. The Gospel of Luke tells us that they worshipped Jesus. That's the word Luke uses. They actually worshipped him. And then in Acts, we're told that they prayed to Jesus using that 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 word Lord that I mentioned before that was a word that could only describe God, in fact when they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, they put all the Hebrew words into Greek words, the word they use wherever the word Yahweh is used Yahweh is a personal name for God in English we say Jehovah wherever the word Yahweh is used in the Old Testament the Greek Septuagint uses the word Lord The same word the disciples used as they were praying here. It's used 700 times in the Bible, describing Jesus as Lord. 700 times. So we know they believed Jesus was God when he prayed, You, Lord, you, the same word for Yahweh in the Septuagint, know the hearts of all. In fact, that phrase, knows the hearts of all, is actually one Greek word that that basically means heart knower. He's the heart knower. Now, that, that could only describe God. So they believed Jesus was God. And if that's what the followers of Jesus knew to be true, they'd be able to feel joy in the midst of uncertainty. Especially when Jesus had made promises about never leaving them and promised them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was a promise that they could believe in that would also bring joy. Those promises motivated them to pray. Because by the way, when you receive a promise from God, that doesn't mean you don't need to pray now. Because God's declared something. He's promised something. In fact, there's all the more reason to pray when you receive a promise from God. John Stott writes, he's an author I read. He writes, it is Only his promises which give us warrants to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. We can be confident that he will hear and answer our prayers when we're asking him to fulfill his own promises. And the word of God, the Bible, is full of God's promises that he wants to fulfill for you. We can pray them into being. Jesus' first followers had such confidence in Jesus' promises because they knew that they were coming from God. They were from the mouth of the Lord. And that meant that they could not only feel confidence amidst uncertainty, but also joy. It gave them confidence as they prayed. And that's why they praised and prayed even amidst uncertainty. Now I put a... A little sentence in that note handout that you have. If there's uncertainty in your life that's troubling you today, take a lesson from the adventures of Acts. The best response is to pray for the promises of God to be fulfilled and to trust him because he's God and we're not. And so we can trust him. But we see in this story that as they prayed in uncertainty in those, during those 10 days, they also prayed in unity. Starting this past Wednesday, this past Wednesday evening, we began, Oh, well, actually it was Wednesday morning. David and I started on Wednesday morning. Right on, David. It was you and me that got it. We, 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 we launched the kickoff, man. We, we did it. So we started on Wednesday morning on Zoom. We had an evening meeting at our place. And we started our 15 days of prayer and fasting. This is Gateway East time to seek the Lord for 2024. And in our weekly Friday email, we encourage people who want to fast together. If you want to fast together with others in Gateway East who are fasting, perhaps choose a Wednesday. And if you're, because if we all fast on Wednesdays and come to prayer times together, then we're sharing that experience together. Although you can pray and fast as much as you want, as God leads you, of course. That's, that's no problem. But on the Wednesdays, we have a morning prayer meeting on Zoom. And then this week, the prayer meeting is actually also going to be on Zoom instead of at our house. So more people can participate who have issues with childcare and bedtimes and stuff like that. So please join us if you want. But I actually found it interesting that after today, after today, starting tomorrow, there are 10 days left... And the days we've set aside to seek God together. Ten days. We've finished five as of today. And ten days are left. And we may not be all staying in an upper room together for those ten days. But we can still seek God together for those ten days. Ten days of seeking God like the disciples did. Praying and praising God in unity together. So consider yourself invited. Professor Paul Kassel, of a theological seminary in Kenya, points out that the first followers of Jesus had many reasons to not pray in unity. They could have very easily ended up squabbling competitively with each other and fighting over. They might have even had a leadership crisis. Because it was actually on their way to Jerusalem, while the Jesus and his disciples were walking to Jerusalem, that Two of the disciples, James and John, started jockeying for position in Jesus' kingdom. They started, they started. They got their mother to go to Jesus and, and ask him uh, to put James and John on his right and his left hand in his kingdom. They, these disciples were competing with each other as Jesus approached Jerusalem to die for them. So it's not, not like these guys were super mature or something like that. They had a lot of maturing left to do. But they didn't fight. They weren't competing during these ten days. In fact, they, they actually were in, in complete unity as they sought God's will together regarding this decision about Matthias. Lord, they, they were very much at peace with Peter taking the lead among them all. And as we seek God's will for Gateway East, I want to do so by seeking God together. One writer I know of says that this story in The Adventures of Acts and this is on your handout, shows us that the followers of Jesus discovered God's will because they had a high view of Jesus as God. They had a high view of Scripture as they searched God's word together for a path forward. And they had a high view of each other as they sought the Lord together. Now, that's what it took for them to persevere for 10 days in that upper room. Now, i got to be honest with you guys. I don't know about you, but I find it very hard to persevere. I'm not bluffing here. You can check with my wife to see how well I do at persevering at things. I can easily get distracted. I can easily get discouraged. And discouragement and distractions are killers when it comes to persevering. By persevering in prayer, I mean it involves both actions and attitudes. It obviously involves the act of seeking God, but it also involves the attitude of praying in faith and not just praying in unbelief. I want to have the right attitude when I pray. So it involves both actions and attitudes, the consistent act of spending time and the consistent attitude of faith. And those discouragements and distractions so often trip me up both externally and internally. And so when I imagine 120 imperfect people spending 10 days together in that upper room, I, I think, wow, how did they stay in unity together? How did they persevere in prayer together? So that's why it's abundantly clear to me that I'm simply not capable of persevering in prayer without a high view of Jesus as God, without a high view of Scripture, and a high view of all of you, of each other, of one another, as we help one another to persevere. I know that if I'm to persevere in praying for Gateway East, seeking God's will to be done throughout 2024, it's not going to happen by me just Trying harder. Have anybody, has anybody ever tried that? When you're, when you're really struggling with something, just try harder. Well, that doesn't always work. Sometimes you need help. Sometimes you need someone to come alongside you. Sometimes it's better to do it together. And that's how you can persevere. My, uh, my inadequacies in this area are way too obvious. So if I'm to follow the example of this story persevering in prayer together is going to be more about putting my confidence in God helping me more about spending time in God's word reading God's word meditating on God's word and putting great value on praying together with others like on Wednesdays when we have opportunity to do so this week in fact part of the reason I love praying with others is because of the hearty amens that are sometimes uttered as we pray I want to just camp here for a minute And just draw attention to our African brothers and sisters. I love you guys. I love praying with you guys. We just had a wonderful pre-service prayer room in there. And the number of amens, if you added up the number of times amen was spoken, you'd you'd lose count. I remember the first time I was invited to go to... uh, a baby naming, baby naming ceremony for a Nigerian family. In fact, the first couple times, it, it, it probably was two or three times before I started getting used to it. But I'd go to these baby naming. A baby naming ceremony is see that in, in the Nigerian culture, um, they don't publicly pronounce. Or maybe this isn't true for all Nigerian cultures because there's like 500 different people groups in Nigeria, so this may not be true of every. Right, Charles? I mean, some people groups might do things differently. But within Nigeria, there are many people groups who won't publicly declare their child's name until they have a sort of a ceremony in their home in which family and friends are invited. And, and then the pastor is invited to come and pronounce the baby's name in that event and pray for that baby. And people who are at the event can even add names to the child's name. I know. I was at one baby naming ceremony where the the child ended up with over 100 names before it was all over. People started texting names to the family. And they'd be receiving these texts as the ceremony was going on. Oh yeah, yeah, here's another one. Praise. Add praise to his name. Or add glory to his name. It's a beautiful, beautiful tradition. And anyway, as I prayed for these babies at these baby naming ceremonies, the first couple times I did it, I wasn't used to praying in a room that was just Nigerians. And I was the only non-Nigerian in the room. But everything, every time I prayed a phrase, every time I prayed a sentence, there would be this, Amen. <laughs> let's have all the Nigerians say, "Amen." Hey, I'm going to pray. And let's not pretend, I'm really going to pray. Father, I thank you for this church. Lord, you've been good to us. You are going to do great things in Gateway East. Amen. That's what it was like. Every phrase resulted in a chorus of amens. And at first I was distracted by it. And I was even a little annoyed. I thought, what's going on? And then I thought, I'm liking this. I'm starting to like this. Uh, This is starting to make me feel like I'm praying something worthwhile. In fact, my faith started to rise. Honestly, my faith started to rise. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're in agreement here. We're praying something good and everyone agrees and God's going to do it. As we prayed for these precious little babies. It was powerful. And that's what happened in the pre-service prayer this morning. You can join us anytime. We we don't have much room, but we're happy to be crowded. Anyway, this is the value. Can I tell you a little secret? That doesn't happen when you pray alone. Nobody's saying amen when I'm praying alone. I have better prayer times with Nigerians than I do alone. Amen. (laughs) There you go. Anyway, I got—I still have to have my personal prayer times, but anyway, I really like those amens. You can say them while I'm preaching too. Do you know what? Persevering in prayer is much easier when we put our confidence in God helping us, when we know and we pray God's Word, and when we put great value on praying together in unity. And when you're praying in uncertainty, like I said in the first point, oh, it's so helpful to be able to pray in unity. When you're uncertain and confused... It's so helpful to have people around you. That's what I want. That's why these two points go together. Praying in uncertainty. Oh Lord, what's going on? Praying together in unity. Oh Lord, thank you. You've surrounded me with people full of faith. And that's what I need when I'm feeling uncertain. But I want to say one more thing. I want to say one more thing. About what kept that... Those 120 people in that prayer room for 10 days praying in unity, even as they prayed in uncertainty. Yeah, those three reasons I've stated, those, th- those three reasons of, of having a high view, high view of God, having a high view of Scripture, having a high view of praying together, they're all important. But there's one more thing there also has to be a desire on our part to pray and to pray together in unity persevering in prayer requires desire you have to want it you gotta want to pray if you're if, you're, if, if you can relate to that I've had times I'm a pastor and I have times where I don't want to pray I'm, I'm discouraged, or I'm distracted, or I'm busy. And there's, or tired, thank you to you, or tired, just exhausted. So many reasons, right? The best prayer you can pray then is, Lord, just give me a desire to pray. Fill me with desire. Be honest with God. He knows where you're at. Just be honest and tell him how you're feeling. So the desire has to be there. Think about it. God truly wants a rich and meaningful relationship with us. He truly wants you to have a devotional life with him that's meaningful. And he gives you sufficient grace to pursue it. His grace is sufficient for what he calls us to. So in other words, the problem is not with God. The problem is with me. My lack of desire. My lack of motivation. My lack of perseverance. So, if we're honest, it doesn't, it often, often, we don't end up praying because we lack the desire. We lack the motivation. So let me share with you, to close, a description that I read in a book. It's, a, it's a, by an author who Writes some really wonderful devotional books about life with God. His name is John Piper. And I read a book that he wrote called Hunger for God. He wrote, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the x-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife from Luke fourteen, eighteen to twenty. The greatest adversary of love for God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God Himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable. I think that applies to us all. And it's left for each one of us to examine our own hearts as to how it applies to us, because it'll be different in every person. This doesn't mean those good things are bad. It doesn't mean it's wrong to do things you enjoy. But that word replace is the key word there. When they start replacing, we're getting more satisfaction from that and zero satisfaction from God.